0: Lo, there do I see my father. Lo, there do I see my mother, and my brothers, and my sisters. Lo, there do I see the lines of my people back to the beginning. Lo, they do call me. They bid me take my place among them in the halls of Valhalla, where thine enemies have been vanquished, where the brave shall live forever. Nor shall we mourn, but rejoice for those who have died the glorious death. Good morrow everybody, my name is Ben Laboot, and welcome back to Stories of Symmetry for the season 2 premiere titled The Old Ways. This episode borrows its title from the prayer that we just heard, called The Old Ways. It is a Norse funeral prayer that dates to around 5 AD. If you recognize this prayer, then chances are that you've seen the 1999 film The Thirteenth Warrior, in which a version of The Old Ways was featured. So today, let's talk about the Old Ways. But let's not limit ourselves to only Vikings, because, more generally, the Old Ways are important to us as human beings, regardless of when or where we hail. When John Adams... The second President of the United States had served his term and was passing the torch to his then rival Thomas Jefferson in 1801. Chief Justice John Marshall of the newly formed Supreme Court of the United States pleaded that there be a peaceful transition of power. The fledgling nation was a long way from security and indelibility, and Justice Marshall knew that if there were a power struggle at the pivotal moment of transitioning, the highest office of the land. If Adams refused to relinquish the position to Jefferson, or if Jefferson tried to take the office by force, then the Inchoate nation and its pioneering form of government would almost certainly unravel into oblivion. In Rules for Kings, which was episode 9 of season 1, we talked about the government of the Israelites over a period of about 500 years, from Moses until the age of kings. Remember that the Israelites began with Abraham and his family, then Abraham's son Isaac, then Isaac's son Jacob, who is also called Israel, then Jacob's twelve sons. In that generation, a famine forced the Israelites to seek refuge in Egypt. And that's basically where the first book of the Bible, Bereshit, or Genesis, ends. The next book Shemot, or Exodus in English, begins about 400 years later, with the infant Moses. Then, fast-forwarding about 80 years, Moses was commissioned by God to become the leader of the Israelites, which, by that point, had grown numerous enough to be considered a nation unto themselves, the nation of Israel. After his commissioning, Moses facilitated and oversaw the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, and he led them forth into the wilderness to seek God. What happened next stands veridically as one of the most important events in all Judeo-Christianity and, arguably, the entire world. For after 40 days on the mountain of God, Moses returned to the congregation of Israel with the Ten Commandments. Referred to as the Decalogue by scholars, the Ten Commandments are the foundation of Jewish law, which, through both direct and indirect influences, became the foundation of all Western law, which in modern times has become the foundation of world law. Yet what Moses brought down from the mountain was more than law, it was moral code. You see, the Ten Commandments were not the first legal corpus. Most famously, the Code of Hammurabi, named for the Babylonian king who decreed it, predates the Decalogue by several hundred years. But the Code of Hammurabi and similar ancient codices are little more than enumerations of specific crimes and their corresponding punishments. These causistic laws are described by if-then statements. For example, Per L.W. King's translation of the Code of Hammurabi, If any man, without the knowledge of the owner of a garden, fell a tree in a garden, he shall pay half a mina in money. And, if a son strike his father, his hand shall be hewn off. Causistic, if-then, laws are generally punishment-based, with said punishment being the only deterrent Of whatever malfeasance the law describes. The notable exception in the ancient world is the Decalogue, with commandments such as love God, don't kill, keep Shabbat, and seven others. The Ten Commandments is an enumeration of only the most essential governing principles for a society, a simple list that forsake specificity and excess. In fact, what I have been calling the Ten Commandments is, in Hebrew, called Ha HaDebrot, or the Ten Words. And there is a strong chance that the original Ten Commandments were indeed only ten words, presented by Moses in an ancient and rudimentary form of Hebrew. It reminds me of the Newspeak Dictionary from George Orwell's 1984. Which reduced the English language to terse expressions. Perhaps the ancient Hebrew used during the time of Moses had similar transformations, such that an idea like theft could be modified with a negative prefix to mean no theft in a single word. If that were true, then the Ten Commandments would not have been a multi page list of thou shalt not make for thyself carved images, nor any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, etc. Rather, it would have been a collection of ten simple ideas, memorable enough for anyone to learn, yet profound and revolutionary. No impostor gods. No idols. No blasphemy. Keep Shabbat. Respect family. No murder no lechery, no theft, no lying, no coveting. Even more compelling, though, about the Ten Words, is their raison d'etat, their reason for existence, their quiddity, their inherent authority, because the Ten Words fail to state why they ought to be followed. And unlike the Code of Hammurabi, there is no punishment for those who transgress the Ten Commandments neither is there merit for those who keep them, for the authority of the ten words is not adcetitious or from any external claim, but from within, from their very own essence. It is not obey these commandments to receive a reward or avoid punishment, it is obey simply because they are. No further justification is needed. The authority of the ten commandments comes not from the state or the ruler, but from morality. And leaning upon only that moral authority, they do not yield more explanation than that. And isn't that like the nature of God, who is above explanation? When Moses asked for God's name, the Lord replied, I am. No other explanation given. No justification to or by the masses. Who is God? God is. I am. Why should the ten words be obeyed? They are. Of course, though, it is worth mentioning that, over time, more statutes were added to the Book of Israelite jurisprudence. Some were added during the lifetime of Moses, and some afterwards, though, in retrospect, they have all been attributed to him for credibility. And when you read through the parts of the Torah containing these laws, you'll notice that most of them take the standard causistic outline of a specific mandate, the punishment for transgressing that mandate, and the prescribed expiation, if applicable. In the end, the Torah contains 613 commandments, or mitzvot, which the rabbis say, is one for each seed in a pomegranate. Of them, 365 are negative commandments, the do nots, one for each day in a year, and 248 are positive commandments, the do's, one for each limb in the body. When Moses had lived six score years, and the time came for him to die, the moribund servant of the Lord passed the leadership of the Israelites to his long-standing friend and second-in-command, Joshua, the son of Nun. And this is what God told Joshua. Be strong and courageous, for you yourself will cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to your fathers to give them. Only, be exceedingly strong and courageous, to take care to observe exactly the instruction that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn aside from it, right or left, in order that you may prosper wherever you go. God's instructions concluded thusly, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified, do not be dismayed, for with you is the Lord your God wherever you go. The appointment of Joshua was natural and agreeable to the Israelites, and God commissioned him to lead them in their conquest of the promised land, to bring the people into that land in fulfillment of God's promise to their forebears. Apparently, though, it would be a daunting task, for three times in eight verses God commanded Joshua to be strong and courageous. But God was not referring to martial strength and battle courage but strength and courage to trust God with bold faith. As the Lord said, be exceedingly strong and courageous to carefully abide by the instruction that I gave to Moses. Indeed, it takes a certain type of courage to stand against an opposing army, and even more such courage if that army outnumbers your own. Notwithstanding, Those of staunch continences have done so time and again throughout human history. Consider the 10,000 Athenians who stood against 25,000 Persians at Marathon in 490 BC, or how 10 years after that, at Thermopylae, fewer than 1,000 Greeks stood their ground against over 100,000 Persians. But imagine the Israelites' forthcoming siege at Jericho, where it takes an altogether different type of courage to not only face a formidable opponent, but to stand back, ignore sound military strategies, lay down your defenses, and trust that the Lord God will win the battle for you. Throughout his life, Joshua did just that. He trusted the Lord. He was strong and courageous, and he oversaw the conquest of the promised land and its division among the twelve tribes of Israel. When Joshua had lived 110 years, he died. The leadership of Israel then passed from his centralized governance to a confederation-like polity in which each tribe was headed by a chieftain-like palatine called a judge. The appropriately named Book of Judges surveys Israel's history during this period, a time in which each successive judge was worse than his predecessor, with each one tending more and more toward violence, capriciousness, vanity, and other destructive vices. When the people could tolerate the judges no longer, they beseeched of God a king, and God acquiesced. Thus began the period of kings and prophets. The kings included Saul, Solomon, Hezekiah, and foremost, David the second and greatest king of Israel. And among the many prophets were Samuel, Ezekiel, Amos, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and the prophet who never died, Elijah. But the age of prophets and kings ended just shy of 600 years before Christ. From then, Israel was occupied by one empire after another. During the time of Jesus, Israel was ruled by Rome. The old ways seem ever-present in the collective mind. Even the Romans themselves frequently bemoaned their own undesirable ways, and pined for a recrudescence of ancient virtues. I can imagine Cicero crying out, O tempora, O Mortis! They would say things like, If only our youths could be like Cincinnatus. Even now, in this day and age, our collective voice calls for a foregone world, perhaps one from 50, 100, years ago. Yet if we were to go back to those eras, we would still find people whinging over their contemporaries and wishing that the values of times past persisted still. When Jesus walked the earth, the Jews often thought about the old ways. They prayed for Masiach, the Messiah, or Christ, who would restore Israel to a glorious status like it had in the days of King David. The people prayed for a new David to lead them, a new Elijah to intercede for them, a new Joshua to reclaim the promised land for them, a new Moses, to restore the law and liberate them. There is widespread concordance that the Gospel of Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. This seems reasonable when one looks at the background knowledge that the author expects his readers to have. And since Matthew believed that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, he supported that claim with pertinent events from the life of Jesus. We now ask ourselves, how does the author begin his work? Verse 1 reads, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. With that appeal to Jewish ethos, the author was saying that Jesus, no less the Messiah, is a direct descendant from Israel's greatest king, a descendant of Abraham, the father of Israel and Judaism itself. From this point in the Gospel, many people skip over verse 2 and head straight for verse 18, whereat the narrative begins. But what's the content of verses 2 through 17? It's a genealogy, a list of names, 28 generations long, pedigreeing Jesus as the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, through Ruth and Boaz, Obed, Jesse, Kings David and Solomon, all the way down to Jacob, whose son was Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. After the long genealogy, Matthew continues on to describe the birth of Jesus and how, when he was still an infant, King Herod ordered the death of all infant males But lo, Mary and Joseph fled in the night and spirited Jesus to safety in Egypt and spared him from the slaughter. A while later, the story picks up with Jesus returning to the promised land after his time in Egypt. The next time we see him, Jesus passes through a body of water whereat the majesty of God was revealed. After that, He withdrew into the wilderness where he was tested for 40 days. If that tale is familiar, then maybe it's because it is the story of Moses. The gospel writer was deliberate and purposeful, representing Jesus as a new Moses. Even more so, who came after Moses to lead the congregation to reclaim the promised land from pagan usurpers? Joshua. Joshua. And who is Matthew's Gospel about? Who is the son of Mary and Joseph? Joshua. No, I didn't misspeak, because Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua, itself a form of the name Yehoshua, or Joshua. In chapter 17 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus, Yeshua, Son of David, son of Abraham, the new Moses and new Joshua, took Peter, James, and John to a mountaintop. And the Bible says that Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. Compare this description to that of Moses in Exodus 34, that as he was coming down from the mount of God with the tablets of the Ten Commandments, his face shone brightly because he had been speaking with the Lord. So Jesus shone brightly, just like Moses once did. But the transfiguration account continued, saying, And his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter assumed that Moses and Elijah were there to stay, so he offered to devise accommodations for them, But the supernal voice of God stopped Peter and said about Jesus, This is my beloved Son, and I am well pleased by him. Listen to him. Now, if we consider one other part of Matthew's Gospel, then we can better understand what all these things mean. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets, No, I came to accomplish their purpose. If anyone doubts that claim and believes that Jesus was at odds with either the law or the prophets, then look to the transfiguration and look to the company of Jesus. Because remember, Moses is representative of the law and Elijah of the prophets. And the transfiguration presents the three not in validation, but validation not in disagreement, but at peace. God's words to Peter effectively meant, Peter, you mistake the meaning of this event. Moses and Elijah are not here to stay and assist Jesus. They are here to pass the torch. I am overwhelmingly pleased with Jesus. He is my son. He is the continuation of the old ways. But he is also something new. So be careful to obey all that he tells you. He is the fulfillment of that which Moses and Elijah initiated. To fulfill something is to complete it, to perfect it, to see it to fruition and realized. What then was the purpose of the law and the prophets that Jesus fulfilled? What was the purpose of God giving the Israelites the ten words, the ten commandments? Why are there 613 mitzvah in the Torah? Why were there prophets to counsel the kings? That last part first, the prophets. They prophesied. They shared God's future plans for Israel and the world. It was the prophets who spoke of the Messiah and said that he would come from David's line. Jesus, then, was the end to which those prophecies pointed. He was the fulfillment of them. It's more than that, though, and to see it, we have to go back, far back, all the way back, to a garden and a land called Delight, wherein mankind made a choice to live by its own writ instead of God's. Ever since then, the necessity became the restoration of mankind and the divine, or putting it plainly, to get right with God. The first step in God's plan was to find someone with enough faith to trust God's command. And God found Abraham. God then said that Abraham's family would grow into a nation, be faithful like their patriarch, and thus become a blessing to the entire world. And, taking baby steps, God looked to that tiny nation and said, If you're going to be an example to the world, then you'll need to start acting like people of God. Lesson 1 is the Ten Commandments, ten words that are simple to learn, simple, even if not necessarily easy, to follow. But do your best to keep these commands, not because you'll be punished if you don't, or reap rewards if you do, but because they will set you up on the path of restoration. Over time, as the centuries passed, God helped humanity further toward restoration, It was stepwise, incremental, one piece at a time, so as not to be overwhelming. But finally, when the time was right, God manifested the capstone of his work, the sure foundation, the reliable cornerstone, the doorway, the gate. Jesus, who accomplished all that the law and the prophets were trying to achieve, the restoration of God and people. And Jesus said that all you have to do to begin to experience that connection with God is to acknowledge that Jesus did it, believe that he renewed the fragmented relationship, and to be okay with that, that it was him and not you, and that it is a gift from God. The nature of the old ways is believing that they were better than the current ones, that there once existed people like Solomon and Joshua, or Cincinnatus, or Lucius Junius Brutus, and if only people like them were still around. Only conjecture can inform us about the quality of ancient Israel, or the Roman Republic, or even our modern world. But the verity is that the world was once better. God was once our king, not tyrants and politicians. But there is hope, because Jesus came with good news, good news that God is indeed the sovereign and ruler of all things. And through his fulfillment of the law and the prophets, by dying on a cross as a sacrificial lamb, Jesus opened the door for us to join the Lord and become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That glorious place is being built here on earth by God's laborers, the church. The construction is slow and methodical, and it is also fraught with difficulties which can, at times, be disheartening. Therefore, let us fix our eyes on the goal, and remember the old ways. Lo, there do I see the Father. Lo, there do I see my Savior at his right hand. Lo, there do I see the lines of the faithful back to the beginning. Lo, they do call me. They bid me take my place among them in the kingdom of heaven, where thy sufferings have been forgotten, where the faithful shall live forever. Nor shall we mourn, but rejoice for those who have died the glorious death, and kept the glorious faith. My name is Ben LaBoot, and thank you for listening to Stories of Symmetry, a fortnightly podcast dedicated to revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. If you're new to Stories of Symmetry, then welcome. And if you haven't yet checked out season one, I highly recommend it. Blogs, episodes, and other information about the show are available online at storiesofsymmetry.com, on Facebook and Instagram, at storiesofsymmetry, and on most major podcast apps. I hope that you'll join again for the next episode, which will be out in two weeks. And until then, as always, go with God, go in peace.